Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Should we bring in Catherine Mann? We should bring, sure, I mean, we can start strong with Catherine Mann. City's global chief economist, formerly heading up the OECD for the economy division. Great to have Catherine with us on the program. Catherine, just looking ahead to the Fed decision later, let's jump straight to the Q&A and the summary of economic projections. What have you got your eye on this morning? Well, I think the real question is whether or not there's going to be more dispersion in the summary of economic projections, because we're already hearing talk, well, we have for some time now, especially since the last meeting, um, more more vocalization by uh, some of the Federal Reserve Bank presidents um, that uh, this march towards uh, 75 or 100 basis point cuts, which is what the market is, this march is is really not a done deal. And, uh, you know, they've been saying that, I think, because of their concerns about um, the consequences for leverage and for spreads. Um, and and they're not they're not in the majority, for sure. But um, they can voice their concerns about the uh, strategy uh, through the S&P, and that um, will uh, generate greater dispersion in the uh, uh, S&P. How difficult does it make the job of Chairman Powell to communicate? How much of that is compromised by this dispersion in the summary of economic projections that you forecast and the dissents that we've seen over the last few months? Mm Well, I think that that he he could um, use this uh, greater dispersion and the dissents as evidence of the complexity of the situation that the Federal Reserve faces in making its decisions. Um, because the fact of the matter is, if this was obvious as to what to do, there would not be dissents, there would not be dispersion, and there wouldn't be vocalization by other bank presidents about the range of concerns uh, that and data that they are looking at. So you can turn this... Uh, towards a the the complexity, the challenges. Here is what we are right. thinking about. Here is what we are weighing. Different of our bank presidents weigh it differently because that's exactly what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be representing their district. Um, so you can turn this away from the uh, single voice of the Fed to why there is this dis- right. dispersion. Dr. Mann, is this a meeting, and as I said, folks, this will be an historic meeting given all the economics that Catherine Mann follows every day, along with the finance and banking of the repo debate. Is this a meeting where this Fed will be more focused on the clear and present danger than trying to game out the future? Well, the clear and present danger um, affects your trajectory in the longer term. Uh, so you can't really separate the two of them. Um, and so they have to be both responsive to the current environment, um, particularly they have to recognize that if they don't do what the market expects them to do, there will be financial turbulence consequences. And that, uh, that, co- that financial turbulence does feed through to the real economy. And the question is, how much does it feed through? And I think that different ones of the bank presidents think differently about how much pass through of turbulence to the real economy that we need to worry about or that they need to worry about. Um, and that's why you're ending up with these different views uh, of, of the situation. And also the extent to which financial turbulence is a necessary part of the adjustment towards a more normal yeah. uh, rate uh, in the, for the policy rate. 
I'm going to put out a chart on Twitter. This is one of the repo charts we look at with the yield up at 3.93%. John Farrell, we don't, I know the charts work on radio beautifully. You'll see it first (laughs) on Twitter on Bloomberg Radio. John, to be clear, we don't have a quote yet for this morning up or down from the 3.93 statistic of yesterday. We'll get that a little bit later this morning. A little bit later this afternoon, there will be a news conference and a smart journalist, perhaps his name will be Michael McKee, will put his hand up and he will ask the chairman a question about what has been happening with overnight rates. And Catherine, I just wonder how the chairman puts this in plain English and how he puts the response of the Federal Reserve in plain English as well. Well, again, I think he has to go back to the, to the word complexity um, it's a very complex system, um, and the uh, market can be very reactive, and the uh, Federal Reserve responded. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a situation that, that he's not going to be able to put it into plain English. I mean, I think he may use the plumbing word because it is kind of a matter of plumbing. Plumbing sometimes gets stopped up, and when, when that happens, uh, you know, the water comes out in places that you didn't expect. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing here. And the plumbers came in and fixed it. Okay, Catherine, man, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate you stopping by uh, through this important Fed Day. Dr. Mann, head of economics at uh, Citigroup as well. We have the right guest, John Farrell. Long ago and far away, um, he would throw pieces of chalk at students that didn't get it at Boston University as professor of finance. For those of you that don't know, BU's finance program is truly world class. Sounds and he will now, he will. It is gruesome, and he will now explain the repo market. Why don't you begin, John, with the grilling of Jack Ablin? Do you know what I love about this program sometimes when Tom tells me what to lead with and then allows me. It's, this is about as far <laughs> as you go. When you just, you know, it's on a short leash here. You tell okay, me what to ask He wants to talk Blackhawks hockey, but we're not going to do that. Why don't you? Jack you know, Hablin. Let's introduce the guest properly. Jack Hablin joins us. I thought I did. Us. Crescent Wealth Advisors founding partner and CIO. Good morning to you, Jack. Good morning. Good morning. Let's begin with this issue. Just walk us through it. What is happening? Well, I mean, it's a simple matter of shortage of overnight cash. Uh, the question is, there is no single source that, that we can look at to say, where did this cash go? Um, some of it perhaps related to the fact that the world expected the Federal Reserve to lower interest rates this afternoon. So they possibly put rates, uh, they, they put their cash out longer dated. Some of it may relate to the uh, corporate tax payments uh, that are due. Um, but the fact is that there was a shortage of overnight cash. And as a result, I think we saw the overnight rate spike to nearly 7% uh, yesterday. Um, Fed has come back and injected cash into the system. Uh, and for right now, I'm not really putting anything more into it. I think it's just yeah. a supply and demand issue. If it were to persist, then perhaps there's a trust issue that we have to consider. A lot of factors going into this. Companies pulling cash from money market funds to pay tax. One of them, the government selling treasuries, a glut of treasuries, a scarcity of dollars, all of that stuff coming together. Some people are looking at bank cash reserves declining and ultimately contributing structurally to what has been happening, not once, but three times over the last 12 months. Jack, just walk us through that, why it's so significant. 
Yeah, I think that, um, you know, having the cash reserves available um, is part and parcel of the banking, you know, keeping the banking system operating. Um, and I think having uh, clients that are, you know, drawing on uh, that cash, um, you know, is, is putting a strain on the system. I, I know it's not Boston University, but we got a summa cum laude holding court here from Villanova in finance. Angela Manalotis, who wrote with Ira Jury Z, a brilliant explainer on all this. And the single sentence from Manalotis is the idea that the repo market is 23% the size of the treasury market. And in the last crisis, they were the same size. We have regulated ourselves to a smaller plumbing liquidity market, haven't we? Jamie Dimon says we're constrained. We, we are, uh, although I think the Fed has expanded the number of dealers which then that can borrow directly from the Fed. So I think what they've done is while the size of the market has diminished, the number of players that can go directly to the, so the Fed has expanded. So are you expanded. saying we're going to see more of these interventions by the Fed like yesterday and presumed today as well? Yeah, so I think that there there are some offsets, but you're right. I think the market has has uh, shrunk, and and I think it, you know, to many investors, this harkens back to the fin- you know the beginnings of the financial crisis when we were having <clears throat> liquidity upsets, um, the auction rate securities and all that uh, that were part of you know the funding crisis uh, back this then. Is, this isn't a trust issue. Right no, now, I don't think it's a trust issue. I think I, I think it's right now it's pretty a supply, ev- demand, and liquidity says, issue. Pretty much everyone says this isn't a trust issue. Yeah, I don't think it is. I think you know, like I said, I think we'll, we'll let it play out and see if 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 we see that uh, the overnight rate is in the threes a week from now, then you know we'll re- reassess. What but, are the chances that the Fed needs to start building up the balance sheet again? Well, you know, that's, you know, that's a slippery slope, and it looks like they may have to do that. Um, I, I suspect, you know, and, and I've been saying that they've created this nanny state for corporate America um, with the low rates and low overnight rates and low, you know, tenure rate. Um, you know, nearly 10% of U.S. companies listed are zombie companies right now. and. Yeah. The question is, which way does the Fed want to go? Continue to ease and just pander to this issue or get tough and yeah. try to reconcile? Jack, nobody cares. The Cubs lost to the Reds last night 4-2. What is this about? The Cubs have to be in the playoffs. The Cubs are holding on by their fingernails. Um, I'm hopeful they'll be in a um, wild card game against the Nationals and perhaps they can get I got their way it. in. The Fed can use Wrigley Field as a collateral, John. <laughs> That's what we'll do. Jack Evelyn, great to see you. Thank you. Chris Wealth Advisors, founding John partner. John Farrow at Wrigley Field would be very cool. I'd love it. He'd be very cool. I love it. I could see him there. I love American football. That was a joke. <laughs> Honestly, it's so, so, so easy to get you guys. So what is a mid-cycle adjustment? Stephen King joining us now, HSBC Senior Economic Advisor. Stephen, just help us answer that. What is a mid-cycle adjustment and is that what you expect? 
Well, we had them in the past. We had one in the sort of the mid 1990s, uh, one that came after the Asian crisis as well, which is sort of 97, 98 time. It's where there's a kind of a, a pause to refresh, a, a small reduction in interest rates that doesn't lead very far, keeps the economy going. Uh, you have a kind of soft landing, and then everything sort of motors back up to to normal, if you like. Uh, the the evidence though is that most times when the Fed tries to achieve one of these mid-cycle adjustments, it discovers that actually it's got a um, uh, a late cycle problem because it ends up cutting interest rates much more than it had originally expected. And that's partly because you end up with a uh, significantly weaker economy than they had originally anticipated. Is that what you expect to happen here, Stephen? Is that your base case on how this plays out? Well, I, I think at the moment uh, it's difficult to look too far into the future. I mean, HSBC has a couple of rate cuts coming through today and then in October, there's a possibility of stuff happening next year that we're not forecasting it currently. But I think one of the big debates about the U.S. economy is is you know, how late cycle is it? And there are a couple of things that I think the Fed will be worried about. One, of course, is the slope of the yield curve. Uh, an inverted yield curve or flattening yield curve has often been a good signal of a downswing to come. Um, and the other thing that they might worry about is the fact that the unemployment rate is so incredibly low. Um, and when you've had a low unemployment rate, it sounds like great news, uh, but often it can be a sign of you know, wage pressures beginning to build, maybe a squeeze in margins, may have an impact on capital spending, and all those things might be issues too. The final issue, of course, is the Fed worrying about uh, the sort of geopolitical situation, and in particular, the, well, the trade war between the US and China. To your book of eight years ago, is it a grave new world? I mean, shouldn't we be optimistic about stunning unemployment rate? resilient U.S. economy relative to everything else? Or are we going into this press conference as a grave new world? Well, the good news is that the U.S. has done better than other countries um, on unemployment um, and so on and so forth. The, the, the not such good news is that the U.S. has a problem which has been shared in other countries too, which is that productivity uh, growth has been incredibly low. Um, and that's given you a kind of a situation where unemployment is low, but wage growth is very, very uh, weak in general. And people have felt that they've been left behind. That's particularly true of you know, a number of different American regions. So although you have on the surface um, evidence of an economy that's doing better than others, uh, there are a lot of, I think, weak links within that economy. Is one reason why um, I think the U.S. has become more protectionist. It's trying to explain why it has these weak links. And of course, one narrative that's emerged is to blame somebody yeah. else, whether it be China, Mexico, or elsewhere. Stephen King, I just put out a chart on Twitter. Radio, you'll see it first. Bloomberg Radio Worldwide, you see it first on Two Twitter. Two charts on radio. Well, there's a lot Fantastic. going on here. In Stephen King, it's something I've never seen. This is a custom chart from our Ira Jersey of the repo market is the size of the treasury market. And as you well know, Dr. King, basically we fell off a cliff in 2009 where we said we're never going to repeat 2007 again. And the size of that repo market is back to 1980, 1980. Have we gotten ourselves into trouble because we have shrunken our markets, hoping never to, to, never to repeat 2007, 2008? I think there are some difficulties out there. The repo situation currently I'm not so sure about. Uh, but I think that one thing that has happened is that you know, the combination of zero rates, QE, and so on and so forth has definitely lifted financial asset prices a long, long way, even though underlying economic performance has actually not been that great. There's a little gap that's opened up between financial hope and economic reality. And that gap, I think, oh, I is something that. which... Yeah, it's sort of it's created an obvious problem for central bankers who think, well, have we 
just created another bubble in the attempt to uh, dig ourselves out of the hole that was created by the global financial crisis. When we get QT, where does the financial hope go? Um, well, QT you're doing because you're trying to sort of unwind the the addiction that has been created on, on continuous easy money. Uh, but as we've seen from the Fed, it's proved to be perhaps a, a more tortuous process than they themselves had originally expected. And I think one lesson, uh, it's like a Japanese lesson in one sense from the experience of the last two or three years, is that even when central banks, including the Fed, have tried to return to some kind of monetary normality, They've really struggled to do it uh, because each time they've done it, they've had to reverse much more quickly than people had originally expected. You go back a year or two, everyone was saying the Fed's going to carry on raising rates for a long period of time. Suddenly, with a handful of months, they're going into the, entirely the reverse direction. And in one sense, they're being dragged down by events elsewhere in the world where, of course, interest rates in Europe, Japan and so on are still absolutely at rock bottom. Stephen, I want to pick up on the issue with Europe right now. There is a big focus on monetary policy impotence. So many people come on this program and say, this is what I think the central bank will do. Now let me tell you why it won't work. Olivier Blanchard <laughs> yeah. of the Peterson Institute, formerly yeah. of the IMF, I'm sure you know him well, Stephen, was out on Twitter yeah. over the weekend. Yeah. And he had a really nice little tweet storm. And I just want to bring you one line from it. I suspect we may be close to the reversal rate. Stephen, how important is that concept right now? And how close are we to it in some big economic blocks? So in Europe, this is a particularly important issue. So uh, it, it really works on the basis that the more negative interest rates go, or these official interest rates go, uh, the more difficult it becomes for banks to be uh, significantly profitable. Um, and one reason for that is that banks, for all sorts of you know, social reasons more than anything else, find it very difficult to uh, offer their customers negative nominal interest rates. Um, and so the consequence yeah. is that they end up paying too much to fund um, their own institutions and their profit margins are inevitably squeezed as a consequence of that. And as that squeeze comes through, uh, it means that effectively the kind of the monetary plumbing doesn't work quite so well. Because in the old sort of textbook examples, you know, the, the, the central bank cuts interest rates a bit. Um, and once right. rates have been cut, uh, you, know, you, you end up with the stimulus coming through in terms of bank lending. But if the banks aren't making any money out of it, uh, then actually the bank lending doesn't pick up in the way that perhaps the central bank would normally expect. So it's a kind of peculiarity associated with the fact that cash ultimately offers you a zero interest rate in nominal terms. So the more negative you go, the more attractive cash becomes, um, and you can quickly move okay. in certain circumstances to a sort of weird economy where cash dominates. Have we reached the constraint or the limit, I should say, rather, on a calculus basis, have we reached the limit of what global QE can do? I think we're certainly in a situation of diminishing marginal returns. So Agreed. Okay, fine. Time. But have we reached the limit? I mean, is that what we've learned in the last 48 hours? No, you, I think you can do more QE if you wanted to. There's no sort of specific limit on it. The issue, I think, is the effectiveness of it. Um, and you know, monetary policy works a lot on people's expectations. If they sort of believe it's going to have an impact, then you know, they become more confident, asset prices rise, all the sorts of usual things kick in. But if it turns out that people are no longer convinced that QE works, it may be that you do quite yeah. a lot of it, but not really much very happens. And of course, that was exactly the Japanese experience over the course of the last 10, 15 years that uh, Kiwi did not deliver the economic outcomes that some people had predicted. This has been wonderful. Stephen King, thank you so much with HSBC. Pleasure. Just extraordinary time today. And it's two very thoughtful Thanks, books. Thanks, Stephen. As, well,
It is always a joy to speak to Austin Goolsby, but it's a particularly joy after Professor Goolsby turns at the Booth School to his analytic finance STEM-eligible uh, uh, brethren, including John Cochran, Douglas Diamond, Luigi Zingales, Eric Swick, Raghun Rajan. I mean, all these guys at Chicago are completely analytical, and you know that's where Goolsby turns when he's got to explain the repo market. <laughs> Professor Goolsby joins us uh, this morning. Austin, we're all brushing up on one- and two-day paper. What do macroeconomists, how do they adapt and adjust to that short-term paper market that analytical finance at Booth School is legendary on? Well, uh, thanks for having me back on, first of all. Um, and I think everybody first, we've, we were all starting to have flashbacks and nightmares. Oh, God, is this how it begins? But I think most people that I have been talking to their view is in a crisis, every correlation goes to one, as they say. And the yeah. fact that this is just one little market and it's not spreading right, right, right. thus far to others um, that means that maybe it hopefully doesn't right. have a grander meaning. You have been wonderful about linking academic theory into the application this afternoon at this press conference, how much is the chairman and the proxy of Vice Chairman Clarida and the others, how much are they making it up as they go versus foundational economic theory? <laughs> that's the uh, that's always the magic balance that the that the Fed chair has to strike. I kind of think that moments like this are always the danger for any policymaker, and you could call it on monetary policy, or if you were thinking about fiscal policy, the same thing, that something strange happens, and you could incidentally destroy your credibility going forward if you say something in passing like, oh, we think there's no problem, this is a minor matter, you know, circa... Ben Bernanke, when they ask him about subprime housing, and he says, no, no, this is a very limited thing, and it's not going to spread. If the facts end up proving them wrong, um, then people are going to conclude either the chair and the Fed system, they didn't understand the theory, they didn't know what was going on. If the facts prove them right, and they get up and say, this is just a technical matter. It's just in one market. Don't everybody, you know, pay no attention, uh, keep, keep walking. Uh, if they say that and that proves right, then essentially nobody will remember it. So I kind of think days like today are a no-win scenario for the, mm. for the Fed. So, Professor, you know, as we await the Fed decision this afternoon, you know, there's a school of thought out there that says as we get to the grinding ever lower rates that incremental rate cuts by the Fed just are losing their effectiveness um, to really impact uh, economic uh, outlook. What is your thoughts? Yeah, uh, look, I 100 percent agree with that. I wrote a, a little piece summarizing that uh, point of view, and, and I, I think it's quite uh, accurate in the following sense. In normal times, forget about the runway length issue, that in a normal recession, as you faced a recession, the Fed would cut rates 400 to 500 basis points. That's the normal recession-fighting move, not all at once, but you know, over a sh relatively short period. There's not four or 500 basis points to cut. 
Okay, so that short one runway problem is one thing. But the second is, even for the same size cut, normally some of the bang for the buck of, say, the investment impact Mm -hmm. or the mortgage refinance impact is that there's some pent-up demand for investment, that people are saying, well, I would go build a factory, I would go buy a car, I would go refinance my mortgage, but I want the rates to come down a little bit. And so when they cut 25, 50 basis points, you get the normal impact plus the pent-up demand. But there is no pent-up demand because rates have been low for so long Right. That there's nobody who's like, oh, well, if the rates would go down well, 25 basis points, I'll refinance, because they would have already refinanced. Um, so I think people are putting too much weight that the Fed can save us. You know, the Fed should do what they're doing, but they're, you know, they're not, if we start going into recession, um, if we start escalating the trade war right. and driving both those economies down, the Fed cutting rates by 50 basis yeah. points is not going to alter that. Austin, Michael Spence, you may know him. He's nodding yes, passing knowledge at Stanford, one of our great educators and a Nobel laureate. Now it, it's a school in New York, Austin, called New York University. <laughs> Professor Spence wrote a jewel in about 2010. It was my essay of the year on when we regulate there are things that are obvious. Let's call them a type one construct. And there's a type two construct, which is a little more sophisticated. and means you, know, you got to be careful what you wish for. Did that happen in the repo market that we have over-regulated ourselves into inelasticity and into a limited choice set for banks under shock? Did we over-regulate and we got to nudge it back a little bit? I don't. No, I, I I take the point, and it's an important point about regulation in general, that the, the false positives versus the false negatives um, viewpoint. I don't know if that's what the story is here. I think it would have to be spread. You would have to see this spread out of just the one narrow market for Exactly. For me to think that it was caused by some yeah. regulatory thing. That's so important. You've heard that twice from Professor Goolsby here in this conversation. The idea of it's discreet to the repo market. And again, to be clear, folks, we have an improved market uh, 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 this morning. We thank Austin Goolsby, of course, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama, uh, a shingle out at the Booth School at the Chicago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.